Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Right to Try podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 13th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host and once again, Secretary of State runner-up, Frank Pasquale, law professor at University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week, a uh, massive welcome back to a good friend, Rachel Sachs, professor at the Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. Professor Sachs is a scholar of innovation policy. Her work explores the interaction of intellectual property law, food, drug regulation, and health law. She explores problems of innovation and access and considers how law helps or hinders these problems. She is a prolific scholar, and I think uh, she has a knack for identifying cutting-edge research. Great to have you back on the pod, Rachel. Thank you, guys. I'm so happy to be back. Long-time listeners will remember me from episode 59 quite some time ago. Ah, almost a career ago. The golden age, yes. The golden (laughs) age. The golden age of podding. So I thought, given our topic today, which is primarily going to be about pricing, particularly drug pricing, I thought we might start with something quite rare for the pod and actually outline some of the black letter law. You know, we've known from... uh, Trump's State of the Union, and of course, back on the campaign, he took uh, issue with that long-standard embarrassment of ours, the Medicare uh, Modernization Act of 2003. We have Medicare requirements of a broad formulary, a Medicaid drug rebate program and its conditions. Can you flesh out this doctrinal picture and add any other sort of drug and IP laws so we get a sense of uh, what what are the real or perceived barriers to some kind of movement on the price issue? Sure, happy to do so. And the first thing I'll note is just that drug pricing, like other aspects of healthcare and health law, is extremely complicated. So I'm going to give a sort of high-level overview, but for any particular example or any particular situation, these factors are likely to play out in somewhat different ways. So A lot of my work focuses on intellectual property law, and many of you uh, who are regular listeners will know that drugs coming to market typically have at least a few patents protecting them, meaning that other companies can't make and sell that drug for uh, while those patents are in force. And on top of the patents, there's typically an FDA exclusivity period. Um, And if it's a a data exclusivity period granted to, uh, you know, small molecule drugs, and that prevents generic drug companies from relying on the innovator drug company's data to get approval themselves during that period of exclusivity. Um, And these periods differ based on whether the drug is a small molecule product or a biologic. Drugs approved for orphan indications get a stronger version of market exclusivity, but basically these function similarly to patents to protect innovator companies from generic competition. And so if we're creating monopolies essentially through you know, government sanctioned uh, uh, exclusivities um, that allows companies to set their prices high to begin with. Now, to be clear, it's possible. You can have multiple drugs come to market in a class. And so even though you have patents on each one of them, there's still competition. So we saw this happen fairly quickly with the hepatitis C drugs, right? Gilead Savaldi faced competition just a few months later from other branded drugs from AbbVie and then 
and from Mark. Um, but patents and exclusivity periods create the um, conditions for one company to dominate the market. Now, this paper that we're going to talk about treats the, the patent law aspect of the situation as fixed, and it looks at these two other areas of law you mentioned, Nick, um, FDA approval and insurance reimbursement, um, and if the effect those two areas of law have on pricing. So to start off with Medicare and Medicaid, right, you already mentioned um, uh, those two payers. Um, Essentially, Medicare and Medicaid have to cover many and in some cases all FDA-approved drugs. So in Medicaid, by, by federal statute, state Medicaid programs that choose to cover prescription drugs, as they have all chosen to do to access the Medicaid rebates, they have to cover all FDA-approved drugs with, with limited exceptions for things like cosmetics. Medicare Part D plans famously have to cover at least two drugs per therapeutic class, and there are six protected classes of products where they have to cover all of the drugs. And then Medicare Part B, which reimburses a lot of the expensive new biologics or cancer products that are administered in doctor's offices, they have to cover products under the reasonable and necessary standard which is quite broad as well. So there are really good reasons why we have these coverage requirements, but they've stayed constant in a world where the character of FDA approval has been changing. So the accelerated approval program allows drug companies to get FDA approval on the basis of a surrogate endpoint. We've seen more products approved uh, for rare conditions or for cancers on the basis of a single arm trial where the therapy to be tested isn't being compared to other interventions. And there's just been a lot of concern about whether the evidence being used not only by the FDA to approve some of these drugs, but also by doctors and insurers to compare them to each other is really sufficient to do that, right? So, so here's the situation, right? Companies have intellectual property uh, patents and uh, FDA exclusivity periods over these drugs. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid have to cover most or all of them. And the approval approval standards um, are somewhat easier to meet now than they used to be. So Medicare and Medicaid have to cover these drugs, but the category of things they have to cover has grown in ways that aren't connected to the reasons we created the coverage rules in the first instance. So we have more drugs approved on the basis of less evidence, and the government has to pay for all of them. And that has created a, a problem in both drug pricing for individual patients, but also um, in the eyes of many drugs drug spending at the aggregate level. So there's clearly a sort of a, a, a public perception of extremely high uh, drug prices. It's, it's a perception that seems to be reflected in um, much of the political process, albeit without any results so far. But I wondered, in your opinion, how much of this sort of pricing crisis that we seem to be in is due to just sort of general increases in drug prices across the board, or whether it's because of innovative, new, price-insensitive drugs, or that we have 
vastly increased cost shifting to patients for their drugs? Well, I think the answer is yes, right? So, so <laughs> for different payers and different groups of patients, some of the drivers that you mentioned will have somewhat outsized importance. So for instance, um, Medicaid is protected somewhat where the price of drugs increases faster than inflation. So you see a lot of news about the year-over-year price increases that a lot of these companies are, drug companies are engaging in. That doesn't really hit Medicaid to the same extent. Um, but the entrance of new drugs, which are priced quite high, that does impact Medicaid. At the same time, there are patients on um, Medicare and Medicaid who are somewhat more insulated from out-of-pocket costs because they have lower incomes. And we've seen the rise of high deductible plans, um, uh, maybe a little bit more in the private insurance context. And so we've seen a lot more patients being exposed to much higher cost sharing, much higher financial toxicity at the point of the they pick the drug up at the pharmacy than we have before. And I do think that's what's driving a lot of the the patient anger, the patient concern about being able to afford these medicines. So I think for some of the, for, for different payers, there are different factors that dominate, but it's all contributing to this overall sense that a lot of people have that drug prices are too high and something must be done when exactly as you just suggested, when we disaggregate the situation, we see that a lot of different things are simultaneously happening and they have different potential solutions to the extent we think that some of them are even problems to begin with. Thanks, Rachel. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciated about this paper was that you focus on a one particular facet of the drug pricing problem. And the policy solutions that you give uh, towards the end of the piece are so well calibrated across a spectrum from what could be, say, the most radical change to more moderate change to just small changes that would still make some uh, difference. And I definitely want to get into those, but just to, I guess, set the table a bit more in terms of the problem overall, you note that the the reasonable and necessary standard in Medicare is really key. And one would think that perhaps in, you know, another world or in other healthcare systems, reasonable and necessary would, in some sense, include considerations of the overall financial viability of the system. In many instances, it doesn't in our system. And I was wondering if you could explain how reasonable and necessary or similar standards in Medicare Part B, Medicare Part D, uh, help drive the problem that you're addressing. Sure. Thank you. So this paper, you know, as we were suggesting, is, is really about the relationship between FDA approval and insurance reimbursement and the impact that has on this drug pricing problem. And so exactly as you suggested, right, we have this reasonable and necessary standard, which is tied more to the provision of physician services, it just happens that increasingly we have a lot more of these drugs that are being um, prescribed and administered through Medicare Part B in, in physicians' offices. And there's been a lot of consternation, a lot of 
writing about the way in which physicians are reimbursed for these drugs and Medicare Part B. You know, people will remember the the ASP plus six uh, reform demo that the Obama administration attempted to uh, move forward to change incentives for physicians on that regard. Um, but there's a lot that there's a, a way in which the system was designed to serve a particular purpose. And then as the way in which the pharmaceutical industry has changed around it, it's meant that we don't have the forces of competition working in the space. Um, we don't have uh, insurers able to access the information they need to prioritize certain drugs. We don't have doctors and patients with that information either um, in a way that that makes it harder um, to see how uh, uh, this is um, a market that in which those forces can operate and then also um, in which we're making the right decisions for patients about what really should be done for them. So, you know, there's this idea that reasonable and necessary is, you know, things that are approved by the FDA, they're deemed safe and effective. So those must be reasonable and necessary. But there's really a lot we don't know about these drugs that we would like to know. And the way in which the FDA approval process has changed has really impacted that. So with respect to this, and just to give listeners a flavor of the overall proposal, and I think we can get back to some of the elements of the type one and type two errors that the FDA may make with respect to safety and effectiveness or other types of issues. How do other countries handle this type of issue? I mean, it seems as though the big problem in the U.S. is that we've got this all or nothing thing going on, that it's either you get approved by the FDA and then there's this sort of domino effect of insurers needing to cover the drug, um, even when it seems as though the increase in clinical effectiveness or the increase in the health that it helps people obtain, measured by dollies or qualities or what have you, is very minimal, right? But it seems as though other play countries like the UK have a more calibrated approach where we can, uh, rather than just having all or nothing, that you know you can get a drug being used in the country, but not necessarily fully covered to the extent that there are cheaper alternatives that provide almost as good um, a care. C- could you explain that, that uh, comparative dimension? Sure. So in the paper, I offer um, an argument that we might want to consider delinking FDA approval and insurance reimbursement either a little bit or completely. And I go through some of the pros and cons of it. And one comparative example I give, um, as you just mentioned, is the UK. So once a drug is approved either by um, the European Medicines Agency uh, or the the you know MHRA, you could also imagine, then NICE in the UK, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, um, does technology appraisals of those drugs. And they make recommendations to the National Health Service about whether those drugs should be covered. So they look at the clinical evidence for the drug. They look at the economic factors, right? Does the drug give patients, give the system good value for money? And if it doesn't, then they won't recommend it for coverage. And um, as you mentioned, you know, they have a, a system of coming up with a cost per quality adjusted life years, or you could imagine disability adjusted life years, but you could imagine a number of different ways of doing this technology assessment. Um, but what the the NHS is basically saying is you can price the product wherever you want, but we are only going to pay a particular amount for it for the national 
national healthcare system. And so they've delinked approval of a drug from public insurance coverage of that drug in a way that allows them to pay for drugs which meet a particular value benchmark and not pay for drugs that don't. And so as you said, you know, you can have drugs which are uh, they they reimburse a little bit less for them and they have a little bit less efficacy as well right you could imagine a system uh, which which paid for drugs on that basis it's not the system we have right now in the US but it's one we could imagine yes we've talked about uh, nice uh, many times on on the pod haven't we Frank uh, just because I think in, in part because we 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 just love the acronym although my my, my current favorite for new technology assessment uh, agency in Europe is the German one, which has the acronym ICWIG. Um, which, <laughs> Ickwig and the angry uh, yes. That's right. <laughs> so I, uh, any any comparativists out there, I, I warmly recommend taking taking a look at the system that they have in Germany and and some of the um, the price controls they've been putting in there. But I wanted to follow up a little bit on this comparative perspective that you started us on, Frank. The underlying report that uh, you talk about in your paper, Rachel, which is a February 2018 report from the White House Council of Economic Advisors. There's a, a phrase in there that I picked out in the report, quote, unlike other developed countries with single-payer systems, which nearly all impose some sort of price controls on pharmaceuticals, the US drug market is less financed by the public sector and more open to private market forces. And I read that and I have to say, is that true? Or is that sort of a myth that we're continuing uh, to try and allow uh, apparently market forces to drive this. So now you're talking about this health affairs blog post that I wrote about the a budget proposal from the Trump administration and this new white paper that came out from the Council on Economic Advisors, which cites some work I did actually on the Medicaid best price rule with also a friend of the pod, Nick Bagley, um, and economist Darius Lakdawalla. Uh, which is how I think uh, I was referred to the paper. But so this paper, you know, as you said, makes makes some interesting assertions from a comparative perspective. Um, I think the one that you quoted, in a sense, it's in a sense, it's right that the U.S. drug market is less financed by the public sector just because we have, you know, only, only um, what, 120 maybe million Americans on Medicare and Medicaid or some number around that, right, when you add them together and uh -huh. then you take out the duels um, so you don't double count them, right? But, but we still have a huge number of people who are in private insurance plans. And so in some sense, yes, perhaps there are more people people in these private plans, but they're highly regulated as well. So it's, it's certainly not the case that um, private market forces are completely dominant uh, in this area or that the private market has solved the problem and that those patients who are experiencing large out-of-pocket costs aren't actually uh, uh, having a problem, right? Of course, this is a situation that needs to be resolved. So there are a number of strange things in this report. I think my personal favorite um, is where it refers to things like overpricing in the U.S. and underpricing in yes, other yes. countries. But so the report clearly has in mind that there is some price which is just right, but it doesn't say what it is, nor does it have an idea about how we might find 
find it. It just knows that in the U.S. we are paying too much and those other countries that have uh, universal health care, they're paying too little and free riding on our efforts. And the real answer, apparently, we're told, lies somewhere in between. Yeah, I think uh, maybe one of the members of one of the economic advisors is Goldilocks. Right. It's 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 I, I know it when it's just right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, you say regulated uh, 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 private health, but also, of course, uh, deeply subsidized with regard to uh, the exchange pieces. But I, too, uh, uh, saw the the pieces on the, the free riding on the the unfair advantage of American innovation. And I'm I'm worried whether we're going to have a drug trade war. And can I jump in on that as well, which is to say, um, I think one of the funniest documents in this literature was a debate that Richard Epstein had with himself, um, which you know sometimes is my impression of, of many of his public appearances. But, you know, the uh, he, he sort of on the one hand says, you know, he wrote that book, Overdose, and sort of is, is very critical of the way in which the pharma is treated in the U.S. But then he also states that, you know, we've got to look out, is there some way in which we're being exploited overseas? And I forget exactly what the terms of the debate were, but I think it's it's interesting to have even even that voice is sort of very concerned about this this angle. Yeah. The other thing that I think it brings up, and just to transition to some other elements of the paper, is you know paying for medical innovation. I always teach from a book by uh, Robinson called Purchasing Medical Innovation, where they compare different types of uh, ways we could do things better, differently. Uh, capital equipment in the hospital, surgery robots for robotic surgeries, um, other forms of equipment. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting in your paper, Rachel, was that, you know, you not only compare things cross-nationally with respect to drugs, you compare in the United States the different ways in which uh, approval or forms of approval mechanisms or certification or quality measures uh, relate to the level of payment for things like devices. And I was wondering if you could uh, discuss whether that might be instructive here for our drug pricing dilemma. Right. So I have thought about these sort of distinctions in pricing for for a while now and the way in which these distinctions and programs that we've created for particular purposes have these sort of strange effects on innovation that we might not like. So the last time I was on Twill, uh, I talked about this idea I had that we should pay more for certain drugs through the Medicaid program because I was worried that those drugs were being disincentivized relative to drugs that would be prescribed to patients on private insurance. And um, so so these kinds of distinctions I, I worry about a lot. You know, as you mentioned, another one in the paper is the way in which we do medical device uh, approvals and coverage. So, you know, one of the, the reasons I talk about this in the paper is, is uh, one of the goals we might have for delinkage is we might hope that telling companies, drug companies, FDA approval isn't an automatic guarantor of insurance coverage. We might hope that that makes them do more studies to compare their drugs to other drugs or to create more information about their drugs that can then be used by insurers, physicians, patients. And so one of the examples I used to see whether that's true is the UK. And then another one is medical devices, right, where um, we have delinked the FDA approval process from the insurance reimbursement system and companies complain about it all the time, right? Of course, they don't like that they have to run two separate gauntlets, one to get approval, although drug approval is generally more onerous than device approval, particularly for the number of devices that are approved through the 510k process, which is more more likely 
like the generic process we have for drugs. Um, but at the same time, then they have to show to CMS why they should be covering these devices. And so we've seen moves by the FDA and CMS to collaborate on uh, approval programs that would allow companies to get earlier input from CMS on these questions. There haven't been very many takers, which is a, a, a subject I'm very interested in, interested in trying to figure out why exactly that is. Um, but we haven't yet seen the kind of information that I've hypothesized that we should want. And that might be a problem because fundamentally when we delink, what we're talking about is trading off, you know, a reduction in access, right? NICE isn't going to recommend that NHS cover everything, but then also a reduction in price, right? They get better prices. And so part of the theory for looking at these other models of approval and reimbursement is that if we're nervous about trading off access and pricing uh, because of the political dynamics in the U.S., maybe we'd be willing to do it if we got something else out of it, if we got this additional evidence out of it. And it doesn't seem like we get that in either the U.K. context or in the medical device context. And that worries me somewhat. I think uh, we've talked uh, a couple of times, Frank, about um, Elizabeth Rosenthal's uh, uh, book on you know the American sickness book and and her observation that with regard to healthcare costs generally as i recollect her very interesting observation about how insurance companies actually turn out not to have any incentives to really negotiate lower costs for their customers and I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the intermediaries, the agents in the drug chain. Obviously, we have insurance companies, managed care providers. We also have pharmacy benefit managers. Are they negotiating on price? Are they helping the situation or are they hurting it by rent seeking? Um, one would have thought that PBMs would negotiate much lower prices and that would get passed on. But then, of course, I'm naive. Well, of course, you know, it's March 13th, and I think we should note that the PBMs may be going away in some very real capacity or at least being reabsorbed into the rest of the healthcare chain, right? Of course, we've been seeing, you know, CVS, uh, which which has, you know, a, one of the largest PBMs, um, and Aetna merging. And then just in the last few days, we saw right, Cigna talk about purchasing Express Scripts, which is the largest standalone PBM in this way. So to the extent that the PBMs are being sort of reincorporated into these insurers, they, uh, it might at some point soon not be appropriate to really talk about them as as middlemen in this, this same way. Um, but I think there has been a lot of concern about the way that PBMs are being paid for their efforts. You know, I think it's clear that they have had a lot of success in negotiating rebates to be paid to them for particular drugs, but it's also been suggested that their incentives are, are misaligned, right? So if they're paid based on the, the rebates they're able to extract, it might be that they have incentives to list a drug with a much higher list price where they can get a really good rebate, but that the net price of the drug is still higher than the price of another drug that they would be able to list instead. So, so this idea that they would be paid based on their ability
ability to extract rebates might create some problematic incentives from a pricing perspective. And so part of the hope would be that bringing that some vertical integration in this context would provide insurers with better incentives to control some of these costs or at least cut out some of the sort of middleman transaction costs. We've also seen a United, I think just last week, say that they would be passing along some of these negotiated rebates to a subset of patients in their plans, which could be seriously helpful for some of these patients with really high out-of-pocket costs. So we're seeing some moves like that. You know, I think it's too too early to say exactly how some of these mergers will change the space, but the pharmaceutical uh, supply chain and um, distribution chain is extremely complicated. There was a congressional hearing in December, I believe, which was focused on this subject, and there was something like 10 witnesses. Uh, the shots of the the panel were, uh, it just looked quite strange, you know, if you're you're used to panels with, you know, three or four witnesses on it, right, where they're trying to, to, Congress is trying to get their head around the complexity of this value chain. And um, it's, it is complicated, but that doesn't mean there aren't sort of low-hanging fruit solutions that we could come up with to different aspects of the problem. Now, I just want to take one moment here to uh, think about the dark side. Think about what could be the worst that could happen, Rachel. And I hope you'll forgive me. Um, I was uh, nicknamed Professor Doom and Gloom on last week's episode, so I, I sort of have to grow into this role. Um, but the, the worry that I have about you know looking over these proposals, and it's a worry that you certainly anticipate, um, if in a muted way in the article, is one of further tiering of the healthcare system, right? So I think you're absolutely right when you quote Eisenberg and say that the FDA is a very different agency now. It's not the agency that's trying to like stop poisons that much anymore, although you know, given the compounding pharmacies, maybe that's, that is still a, a necessary uh, dimension of them. But that it really is an information-generating agency, that that's really critical, this information generation issue. And the worry that I have, and it's a worry that I derive from some of my study of the shift in credit evaluation from one of you either are allowed a loan or denied a loan to one of calculative risk management, where, you know, it's just a sort of probabilistic assessment of your ability to pay leads to a different interest rate, is one in which tiering in the healthcare system grows ever greater and more fine-grained, so that you have people sort of trying to make decisions that I think in the financial context make sense intuitively to people that, you know, with a certain credit score, you're going to have to take on the loan with a certain higher level of interest rates. But in the medical context, you know, trying to figure out what it means of, say, I am in a 76th percentile plan that provides coverage, you know, better than 75 other plans, but worse than, you know, 23 other ones. And what exactly does that mean for me in terms of um, how many drugs that will cover, the practical consequences, etc.? And I guess the ultimate import of this question is, is I think that um, I would think think of perhaps a friendly or uh, maybe unfriendly amendment or qualification of an idea like this delinkage um, would be that we must move away from consumer-directed models of care because consumers just, it's just too hard. It's hard for me even to imagine how that would be presented in a useful or compelling way to the average consumer, but instead that we would have to rely on much more technocratic intervention to decide what types, what levels of reimbursement are 
proper and what are not and what is the maximal risk we would allow consumers to take in this world of delinked approval and uh, reimbursement policy. So what a wonderful question. I have I have two responses. First, Frank, you've, you've managed to put your finger on my deepest concern with this paper that I myself <laughs> have written, which is that I'm, I'm deeply concerned about my own proposal to delink FDA approval and insurance reimbursement in Medicare and Medicaid, right? As, as I say in the paper, and as I've said on this podcast, there are really good reasons why we have these coverage requirements. I'm, I'm even more concerned about this idea that we would turn Medicaid into almost more of a, a second class program than we've seen efforts by the administration to do so far. I, for many people, right, it is um, a lifeline to access to care. And it does trouble me that I would say Medicaid programs should be able to exclude some of these drugs from coverage that are being approved on the basis of much less evidence, right? That makes me really nervous. Um, at the same time, uh, if we were talking about doing it on a population-wide level, as we see in the UK, I think that that does make me somewhat less nervous. And this goes into the sort of my my second comment. I, in in general, am somewhat less troubled by this idea that we would need a, a technocrat sort of figuring out what the right set of drugs to be approved and covered is. So for disclosure, I'm on the um, Midwest Comparative Effectiveness Public Advisory Council for ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Um, and ICER is, you know, a, a private nonprofit. Um, so they don't have, you know, actual governmental power in this sense. But what they do is when these new drugs are approved, they they perform a, a nice-like function where they say, you know, here's the evidence. Here's how it looks like it compares to other drugs. Do we think it's worth it from a societal perspective and really here are the the cost per quality that kind of thing and that is a decision that other countries have been comfortable making it's not a decision we've made so far in the US um, but it it might be a decision that we will have to make in the near future if um, these costs continue to increase at an unsustainable rate you know we would we rather have um you know the the government saying we simply can't afford to pres- to provide health insurance coverage to broader groups of people or would we rather say you know here are the drugs that we know are safe and effective and are providing good value and we're going to make sure that every american has access to those drugs and i think it's a complicated question and one i'm deeply concerned about but it's also one that i think would have to be done appropriately and transparently and quite seriously if this were to work. Somewhat uh, ironically, actually, we are having that discussion at the moment with regard to one class of drugs, aren't we, which are opioids and the risks and benefits of uh, continuing to uh, have those uh, broadly available. But I wanted to to push your um, the segmentation piece a little bit more from your question, Frank. You know, if you if you if you see that segmentation on the x-axis, if you 
like. On the y-axis, you're going to have some kind of segmentation based on which state folks live in, because state laws um, in the vacuum of um, federal law on price controls are beginning to come in and play here, aren't they? You know, I think in Maryland, don't you have a prohibition on particularly large increases in pricing on generics or something like that? You know, I'm not familiar with the details of that exact law, Nick, but I did notice in Rachel's paper some really good stuff on um, inflation protection for Medicaid. And then also we had this great lecture from Aaron Kesselheim last week where he right. talked about the New York, and we talked about the New York thing, with that, right. which had certain restrictions. Yeah. And there are some states like uh, California have transparency laws. You know, you have to, the drug company has to provide notice and maybe even justification. Some states are putting limits on costs of a 30-day supply. I think Vermont has an annual cap on out-of-pocket expenses. So I think just like uh, some of our discussions about the dismemberment of the ACA translating into a real laboratory of state activity. We may continue to see this in the states on the pricing issue. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, in 2017, we we heard a lot from the president and Congress about how drug prices are too high, but we saw very little action on that front. That was not true at the state level, right? We saw, you know, dozens of drug prices bills introduced and a number of potentially significant ones, including the Maryland law, including the New York one, you know, being passed. And so the problem, you know, I think from from my perspective is that federal law really limits what states can do on this front. So there's a reason the Maryland law was restricted largely to generic drugs. Um, It's probably the case that they thought they couldn't legally do it for branded patented drugs. And so there is a need for federal approval, federal interaction. Um, more recently, we've seen something interesting where some of the states are trying to force the federal government to move on importation, uh, which is something that you know the Secretary of HHS, HHS actually has the authority under you know um, uh, the 2003 um, MMA to certify that certain drugs are uh, safe for importation but no secretary has done so yet. Um, And Secretary Azar suggested, I think, um, during his confirmation hearing that, you know, there are good reasons why they haven't done so yet. But there are states now moving to pass laws that would allow them to import drugs subject to the HHS secretary making such a certification. So we might see a push from red and blue states alike um, on this this question. Um, And then in the paper, you know, I talk about some of these 1115 Medicaid waivers that we're seeing states like Massachusetts and Arizona start to submit so that they can exclude certain drugs in Medicaid. Um, And there's a a lot of state entrepreneurship on drug pricing happening here, but they really do need the federal government to either actively help out or at least get out of the way on some of these uh, topics before they're able to 
really make a difference for their citizens. Since I gave the challenge last question, I think I'll challenge the other side with this one, which is to say, uh, challenge to, to the idea of the paper in the last question, I'll, I'll challenge, say, the, the pharma interest that I think would be opposed to it. And I guess one thing I would love to see is just a report from pharma, from other entities that might really like the current linkage of um, approval and reimbursement as to what are the drugs in countries like the UK and others that have this uh, delinkage and that have sort of clear rules of cost effectiveness. What are the drugs that those countries are not getting, but that we, for the most part, get in the US? Um, I remember a few years ago, there were certain you know rumors or worries thrown around about prostate cancer or other things like that. I don't think that was ever substantiated. That was one of Rudy Giuliani's talking points or something. But I really would like to see that just to be sure that we have a good evidence base to see, is this really in a position of hardship on people in general, or is it something that is really being driven by pecuniary interest rather than health risks? So that's my challenge to the listeners that are skeptical uh, about this proposal. And I would love to see such a report. And I think there are absolutely ways to justify or explain um, why any exclusions in other countries are detrimental to patient care or are detrimental to um, patient choice or whatever values you're going to prioritize. So, you know, if you're going on a very strict cost per quality sort of approach, then a lot of cancer drugs don't seem to score very well along that dimension. A lot of orphan drugs don't seem to score very well along that dimension. But you could imagine very plausible policy justifications explaining why we should continue to cover those drugs anyway. And the UK has had to come up with, you know, a, a sort of adjusted system for covering some of these cancer drugs in part due to due to public pressure. So, so you could certainly imagine a very plausible report on that score coming out. You know, I, I haven't seen it, you know, probably because um, that day does not seem to be particularly close uh, for, uh, uh, I imagine industry thinks it's quite far off and it, it probably is, you know, we are still fighting about whether we're going to pass the things like the CREATES Act, which is an extremely sort of small attempt at addressing some of the anti-competitive processes we've we've observed in this system. Um, and so this paper, I think, is really, um, it may be that it's going to be a few years before states or the federal government have to confront some of these questions. But, you know, as I note in the paper, states are already filing for, uh, you know, permission to do some of these things. And it's important that we think carefully about the purposes of both FDA approval and insurance reimbursement and consider whether what we've done is really advancing those purposes. And if not, you know, should we rethink um, the policy and then also the, the theory? Well, there you are, Secretary Azar and Commissioner Gottlieb. You've been given your homework. And that was The Week in Health Law. Thank you so much to Professor Sachs for joining us. You can find her at R.E. Sachs, R-E-S-A-C-H-S. Rachel, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, both of you. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>